Are you competitive? Yeah, no. Is your family competitive? Do you come from a competitive family? Do you have a specific family member that you're competitive with? Maybe a a brother or a sister, maybe even a husband or a wife. Sibling rivalries are very common, but it could even happen uh, husband and wife. I have a, a, I guess you would call it a sibling rivalry between me and my brother with uh, just about everything. Um, right now, this year, we're doing fantasy football. I never do fantasy football. They persuaded me. I decided to do it. I'm like new to it, so I don't know all the ins and outs, and my brother's done it over the years, so... Um, I'll occasionally ask him questions, and uh, I'm always trying to find out who he's going to pick on the waiver wire coming up the next week so that I can get that specific player before him. Now, we trash talk quite a bit, and we joke around, and we have fun with it, but there's one thing for sure. I absolutely want to beat my brother, and I'm willing to do pretty much whatever it takes to beat him in fantasy football, much like any other thing that we have uh, competition towards. Anything, whether it's knowledge or sports, it could be anything. In this text, we're going to see just that, a sibling rivalry. And not just a sibling rivalry, uh, a family rivalry, both with Rachel and Leah and with Laban and Jacob which led me to title this message, Family Rivalries. Family Rivalries. Please pray with me before we go into the text. Jesus, we come before you tonight, God, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word, Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts as we dive into this message. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us personally, God. We're here to draw near to you and become more like you. So I pray that you would do that today in your name. Amen. All right. We'll be in Genesis chapter 30, continuing our study through the book of Genesis. We're going to get through the whole chapter. It's 43 verses, so uh, a lot to cover tonight, um, but we will get through it. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, says... Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. So in this culture, for a woman to be considered barren, they were considered to be cursed by God. So Rachel is under the assumption that God is against her, if you will. But not only that, she's going to blame her husband. But it says here that she envied Leah. When Rachel sees that Leah has bore four sons already, she looks at that what Leah has and she desires it. She wants it. She's jealous of her because she's discontent with the situation that she's in. Which brings me to the first of four points. Jealousy is rooted in discontentment. Jealousy is rooted in discontentment. Now, remember, this isn't just Rachel being envious of Leah. Leah is envious of Rachel as well. See, 
Leah wants the love from her husband that Rachel has. Remember, Jacob loves Rachel more. And, sorry, Rachel, how did I say that? Rachel wants the sons, the children that Leah has. So they both want what the other sibling has. Why is it that we get so caught up with desiring what other people have? We look at our circumstances or our situation and we compare it to someone else's situation. We say, if our situation or our circumstance was like theirs, our life would be better. But it's simply not true. See, contentment isn't an issue of circumstance. It's an issue of the heart. When we're always looking at what other people have and desiring that thing that that other person has, we really rob ourselves of the joy and contentment that the Lord wants for us. Now, contentment is such a crucial thing in our Christian walk. And this is a thing that Paul encourages us in. In Philippians chapter 4, it was something that he says he learned. If you look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, and I love this verse. Because Paul says he learned it, meaning that he didn't always have it. He learned to have contentment. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He's giving us an idea of how he learned contentment. Think about Paul's life. There were times where he had absolutely nothing and there were times where he had everything. There were times where everybody around him hated him to the point of persecuting him and throwing him in prison so that he was solo and alone. And he had other times when people were literally worshiping him as God. So think about the spectrum that we see here in Paul's life. He had gone through some extreme situations and circumstances, and he found through all of those situations and circumstances that one thing and one thing alone remained the same. And that was Jesus. That was the Lord. That was the relationship that he had with the Lord. He knew that despite the circumstances always changing, Jesus would never change. So we've learned to have contentment in Christ alone because that's the only thing that he could count on. See, until we find our contentment in Christ alone, we'll always be wishing our lives were different than they are. We will always be wishing that we had someone else's circumstances. For Rachel here, back in Genesis chapter 30, her whole identity is wrapped up in bearing children. And because she couldn't bear children, she wants to die, she says. She can't fulfill the purpose that she believes she was put on this earth to do, to bear children. So she says, look, back at 30... Verse 1, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. If I can't serve my purpose on this earth, then I might as well die. 
She's trying to find her purpose for her life in what she does and not in, in who God is. Which brings me to the second point. God is our purpose for living. God is our purpose for living. Without purpose, what's the point of living? And there is no purpose for living without God. See, Rachel, she's finding, trying to find a specific purpose for her life in bearing children, but she needs to learn to find her purpose in Christ, in Christ alone. But there's also a truth that I want to pull from here. Um, which I believe many of us can relate to if we have no purpose. Really, what is the point of life? And when you look at society today, and when you look at what's being taught specifically in secular, secular schools, um, it's no wonder that the suicide rate is where it is. It's the 10th most common way for people to die in the United States. Why? I believe so much of that has to do with children being taught that uh, there's no real purpose. We were we're here by chance. It all is just happenstance. We were um, just these single single celled organisms that evolved over millions and millions of years and we became human beings. And when we look at that and we take God out of the equation, what's the purpose of living. You know, when you look at, and I looked into this and I'll read you some statistics. When you look at statistics and you look at the suicide rate, it's most common among college age students because that's when this stuff is being crammed into their minds. Let me read you some stats. 9.3 million adults, that's 3.9% of the population, have had suicidal thoughts in the last year. The percentage of adults having serious thoughts about suicide was highest among adults aged 18 to 25. That's 7.4%. Followed by adults aged 26 to 49, then by adults aged 50 or older. Another interesting statistic is that females are three times more likely to attempt suicide. But males are four times more likely to be successful. That's interesting, right? Why? Well, when you look at the statistics, um, women typically will try to commit suicide by overdosing or poisoning themselves. So they have more attempts, but they're not always successful. Males, they tend to use guns. But this is such a problem in society today, and I can relate to this on such a deep level, especially in my college years. The things that I was being taught in the secular universities that I went to really brought me to a conclusion that there was no purpose to live. That there, if there is no God, and this is how we came about, and it's all just circumstance and happenstance and coincidence and all these different things, then there is no purpose for life. And I would struggle with these suicidal thoughts constantly. And I strongly believe that it's a product of what's being taught in secular society. But we know as believers, this simply isn't the truth. That there is a purpose for our life. 
And that purpose is God. God has a specific purpose and a plan for each and every one of us. But as we see here in this story with Rachel, that purpose or that plan, it's not always the plan that we originally thought that it would be. Rachel is struggling with her life right now. Give me children or else I die. Because she thinks again that the only purpose she has in this life is bearing children. But in all reality, God has an even greater purpose for her. He wants a relationship with her. And what else is really interesting about this very statement, give me children or else I die, Rachel dies from giving childbirth when she uh, produces Benjamin. So that's in Genesis chapter 35. If you um, look back to Genesis chapter 30, verse 2, it says, And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? Jacob is angry at Rachel because Rachel's blaming it on Jacob. She's saying, Jacob, why won't you allow me to bear a child? But obviously, there's nothing wrong with Jacob. He's having children, just not with Rachel. He just had four boys produced through Leah. So he points it back to God. He says, hey, am I in the place of God? It's God that controls the womb. You know, I can't do anything about that. So they have this heated argument about why Rachel can't have children. It continues in verse 3. So she said... Here is my maid Bilhah, go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. This was a custom of that day. If a male and a female um, had children by one of the slaves, by one of the servants, it was considered to be that male and female, the master of that servants, their child. So this child uh, technically wouldn't be Bilhah's, it would de- technically be Jacob's and Rachel's. Really interesting thing. Picking it up in verse 4. Then she gave and Bilhah her maid as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Dan means judged. What Rachel is basically saying is that God ruled in her favor as a good judge. She was able to have Dan through Bilhah. Genesis chapter 30, verse 7. And Rachel made Bilhah, and Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Naphtali means my wrestling. What is she wrestling with? Well, she's wrestling to keep up with Leah, right? Leah has four children. She's at two now. So she's saying, ah, I'm gaining on her. I'm wrestling to keep up with her, and I'm gaining on her. They're literally having a competition about who's going to have the most children. And whether it be by a slave or by themselves, whoever has the most children, they win. That's what Rachel is wrestling over. Again, I'll ask you, are you competitive? Are you someone that will do whatever it takes to win? 
Rachel is that person. She's willing to give over her slave to just wrestle with Leah to get one more on her to win this competition of childbearing. But really consider this. If you're that competitive person and you're willing to do whatever it takes to win, but do you consider at what cost it costs you or the other individual to win? What do I mean? So often when it comes to, comes to competition, our Christianity gets thrown out the window. We get so caught up with winning that we leave Jesus behind the door. We don't bring Jesus into the competition, which brings me to the third point. Keep, keep competition Christian. Keep competition Christian. This is kind of funny, but it's all, it's serious as well. Sometimes we'd rather be the best than be like Jesus, but that's not okay. And the Bible speaks clearly throughout the scriptures, but specifically in Philippians chapter two about considering others better than yourself. If you look at Philippians chapter two, and this is all leading into the mind of Christ, but we're going to look at just Philippians chapter two, verses three and four. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not about how we can better ourselves, but how we can edify others and glorify the Lord. So when I was in El Salvador, um, we would do this outreach on Sundays. Now, MS-13, literally, they ran our block and they would stop people from driving down our street and the people would have to pay them just to use the street. Now, we developed a good relationship with them because conveniently on our property, we had a soccer field. And on Sundays, if they wanted to play soccer, they'd have to come to church. Now, it wasn't specifically our outreach at that time. We kind of did another outreach with them. But on Sundays, you had all the church congregation uh, separated in different teams that they kind of made. And for MS-13 to be able to play there on that soccer field, they had to come to church. The saddest thing... MS-13 was the most well-behaved on the soccer field than any of the other Christian groups. They were the ones that kept the rules. They were the ones that were respectful. They were the ones that were honorable. The Christians were the ones cursing and getting all in an uproar and, and, and doing all these different things and causing all these different problems. And you look at that and by looking at them play soccer, you would wonder who the Christians actually were and it's such a shame to have an opportunity like that slip through your hands because your desire to win a game is greater than your desire to win a soul and it's so serious and i find my this is super convicting for me because i find myself sometimes in competition my desire to win sometimes gets in the way of my desire to portray jesus but we can't let it go that far. We got to keep the competition Christian. Picking it up in verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. 
And Leah made Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. Gad means troop or fortune, okay, or fortunate. So there's some speculation about the translation of this specific one. It, it looks more to be the word fortune or fortunate. And Gad is in reference to the God, the pagan God of luck. Actually, and what Leah isn't saying is that she's naming him after Gad, the pagan god of luck, but she's recognizing that she's fortunate and she's praising God because she's lucky, if you will. She's fortunate. Picking it up in verse 12. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughter will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Asher means happy. In verse 14, now Reuben went into the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So a mandrake is a small orange colored berry like fruit that grows on a root. Now mandrakes were believed to increase for, uh, fertility. They're believed to be an aphrodisiac. So they're very valuable. All right. They're very valuable in the culture. But think about this situation. They're extremely valuable to these two ladies, right? Leah and Rachel. Why? Because they want to keep getting pregnant. They're in this competition about who can bear the most children. So anything that will give them a step ahead or gain an edge or an advantage on the other one. Hey, they want it. So Rachel, she finds that Reuben has found these mandrakes and she's like, I want these things. I'll do whatever it takes to get these things. And so she makes a plan and she talks to Leah about how she can have some of her mandrakes. Look what, look what happens in verse 15. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Wow. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. Apparently, there is a time period where Jacob wasn't lying with uh, Leah. So Rachel says, hey, I'll make a deal with you. Give me some mandrakes and I'll let you lie with Jacob. I'll, I'll make him lie with you. Now, this plan doesn't really work out the way she intended. Look what happens in verse 16. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes, hiring your husband. It's interesting. And he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Asakar. So we see here that Rachel, she's trying to get the mandrakes wise so that she could be more fertile. Okay. Aphrodisiac. But what ends up happening? The deal she makes actually makes her lose. Now she's one down again and Leah ends up having another child. Pick it up in verse 19. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. 
Zebulun means dwelling. Obviously, what she's saying here, she named him after the fact that she was under the assumption that once she has six sons, now, now I'm going to win Jacob's heart over. So she's still not in the place that God's calling her to be as far as her contentment with the Lord. Then look what happens. Verse 21. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now, this is the first mention of a daughter. So this was likely the first daughter that was born. And you might say, wow, 10 boys in a row and now one girl. Well, we have to remember that God's behind the scenes doing all the work because these boys would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Look what happens. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. This is so interesting that throughout Scripture, we see that God is the one that opens and closes wombs. It's truly a gift from God to open a womb and be able to conceive a child. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. That's so crazy. God is the one doing the work that he says what wombs can be open and what wombs can be closed. And he blesses us with those precious gifts called children. Some of you are like, yeah, sometimes my child's a gift. Sometimes I don't know about that. I assure you, God says they're good and perfect gifts. They might not be perfect to you, but they're perfect to God. Look at verse 23. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach reproach so she called his name joseph and said the lord shall add to me another son that's what joseph actually means may god add she means she wants more she's like yeah i got joseph but i want another son may god add to me another son we'll see that god answers this prayer down the road through benjamin but i want to again point to this character flaw in Rachel because it comes up again. She's discontent with what she has. God just blessed her with a perfect gift. He just bestowed favor on her and blessing her with Joseph finally and she's still, she's not content. The very thing that she thought was going to make her content doesn't. She wants more and she even names him that way. God can always give us more, but we need to learn to be content with what we already have. Which brings me to the fourth point. Be content with what you already have. Simple as that. Those who are always looking for more will never find what they're truly looking for. See, Rachel is under the assumption that if I just have all these children, then I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to be fulfilled. I'll, I'll have done my purpose on this earth. But she's still miserable. She's still discontent. She still wants more than what she has. We can fall into this as well. See, many of us, when we first came to the Lord, we had nothing. Or nothing that we realized was worth anything. And we came to God and we said, God, save me. I'm a mess. I'm miserable. I'm unsatisfied. I'm discontent with life. God, give me a life. Give me a purpose in life. And what happens? The Lord's like, all right, grace. I bestowed grace on you. 
then what happens a little bit down the road? We get so caught up in the love of God, the grace of God, the joy of God. And then I want some more. Um, I, I want a little more than what God has given me. All of a sudden, His grace isn't sufficient, but His grace always is sufficient. It has to be sufficient. The moment that we think that grace is not enough is the moment that we're going to be miserable again. And God, He brought Paul to this conclusion. In fact, He spoke it to him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. As Paul was pleading with the Lord, he was asking God, for something specific. He was asking God to take something away from him. Take an infirmity away from him. Paul is healing all these people, yet he can't be healed himself. And he says, God, I, I need more. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Remember my grace. Remember who you were. You remember the situation that you were in. Remember what I did. That's enough. Is that not enough? Is my grace not sufficient? Is salvation not enough? Joseph's born. He's the 11th son. Pick it up in verse 25. And it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place into my country. Now remember that... Um, Jacob served seven years for Leah, then he got Rachel, but had to serve another seven years. So at the time that Joseph is born, this is likely right at the end of that seven year period, that second, so that's the 14th year, or shortly after that. And Jacob asks Laban, hey, send me back home. I know I need to go back home. Why? Because God had told him that, right? You remember the promise that we talked about a couple chapters before. God had promised him that he was going to bring him back to the promised land. So Jacob, he knows he needs to get back to where he came from. Look at verse 26. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go. For you know my service, which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, please stay if I have found favor in your eyes. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. This is interesting. This word experienced is the Hebrew word nakash, and it means enchantments or divination. Okay, so what we see Laban is actually saying here is that he learned through divination that God was the one behind the scenes Blessing Jacob all this time. So what does that tell us? That um, Laban, he practiced occult practices. He was not one that truly followed the Lord. He was into these other wicked types of things. So we don't know if it was him specifically. He says he learned through the experience, but that word again, it's enchantments or divination he learned through this thing we don't know if he was the one that actually did it or if he sought out uh someone else that found out this information for him so regardless of how laban knew it was clear that jacob truly was blessed by god it was obvious in how much laban's uh flocks and um possessions increased Look at verse 28. Then he said, 
Name me your wages and I will give it. Once again, we see Laban giving Jacob the opportunity to name his wages just as he did before when he uh, asked him to work. He said he'd work seven years for Rachel. 29. So Jacob said to him, you know how I have served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I, before I came was little and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now when shall I also provide for my own house? So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen. If it is with me. So in the Middle East, sheep are usually white and goats are usually brown or black. So a speckled or a spotted one of these, a sheep or a goat would be very rare. So what we see here in this massive flock that Laban has because of God's favor on Jacob, there's um, lots of sheep, but there's only a few speckled and spotted sheep. So what Jacob essentially says is, hey, I'll tend to all your flocks. I'll take care of all of them. And from this point forward, whatever speckled and spotted sheep are produced, when it's my time to go, then I'll go and I get to keep the speckled and spotted ones. So look what happens, Laban. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled. Speaking of Laban and spotted all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hand of his sons. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So look at what Laban does. He goes, all right, I'll make that deal with you. Then he takes all of, the same day, the speckled and spotted sheep and goats, and he tells his sons, you're going to take these ones, you're going to get three days away from the other ones so that those speckled and spotted ones can't come anywhere near the regular colored ones. Why? Because if there's no speckled or spotted sheep to breed with the other sheep, then there's a less chance that a lot of speckled and spotted sheep will come of it. So Laban, what he's trying to do is minimize the amount of sheep and goats that Jacob will walk away from at the end of this deal. Verse 37. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them and exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters. In the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink so that they could conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods and the flocks brought forth streaked, uh, streaked, speckled and spotted. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the streaked 
and all the brown in the flock of Laban, but he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. And it came to pass whenever the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So we see this is a very interesting method. Okay, so what we see Jacob does is he takes these rods and he peels them, making them striped. So basically the thought is that Jacob is thinking that if he has these um, striped rods, that the sheep will see the striped rods and conceive striped, spotted, speckled sheep. Now, at first take, at first glance, this looks a little ridiculous, right? But when you consider who Jacob is and how long he's been shepherding, he might know something that we don't, okay? He's been shepherding for decades with his father, and now he's been shepherding Laban's sheep for 14 years. This is really interesting. There actually might be something more scientific here than superstitious. If you look at the original language, if you look at that word in verse 39, so the flocks conceived before the rods, this word conceived in the Hebrew is yakam. It actually means to make hot. So these rods somehow, some way would make the sheep uh, sexually aroused. When they looked at these rods, when they were faced before them, it would put the females in heat somehow, some way, and the males, they would want to get going. Now, there's um, some interesting stuff about these specific plants, and some of them are actually used for aphrodisiacs. Now, what Jacob did was he realized that Somehow peeling these rods and revealing them to the sheep, it sexually stimulated them. So when he saw the stronger ones come to drink water, he kind of had them on a rotation. The strong ones and the weak ones. So when the strong ones would come to get water, he would reveal these things. He'd put the rods out. So the stronger ones were the ones that continued to breed making more and more stronger ones. And then the ones that were weaker, he took them away so they would breed actually less often. So his sheep would be more uh, abundant and stronger than Laban's sheep. Now, this method, it might seem like madness, but we see that it was super effective. And on top of all of that, we're going to see next chapter in Genesis 31 that... Not only was this method uh, likely useful, but God had favor on Jacob. So, of course, God is going to bless him abundantly. And the flock that he leaves with, it says, look, he had large flocks, female and male servants, camels and donkeys. Regardless of the method, God's favor is on Jacob's life. So he's going to make him prosperous. And that's why he becomes exceedingly prosperous. So when you look at this chapter, finish faster than I thought I would. These family rivalries, they're pretty brutal. We see the things that 
Rachel and Leah are doing, giving up their slaves. Now, it sounds a little weirder now in our context, in our day, but still, even for them, they're giving away their desire to bear children was greater than the jealousy they had for uh, of knowing that their slave was intimate with their husband. That's absolutely profound to me. So you look at these family rivalries and what they did to each other, both Rachel and Leah and Jacob with Laban, specifically Laban towards Jacob, and it's pretty pretty rough. The The family dynamic that we see here, it's not a very godly family dynamic. It's not really what our family should look like or our family rivalries should look like, but we see God uses it in a profound way. Even though we see that there's children born to these slaves that were given up, these boys, like I said earlier, became the 12 nations of Israel. And these sheep and these camels and these donkeys and all these things that Jacob gained from this situation would be the very things that sustained his family. Now he has this large family. So despite these flaws and despite these family rivalries and despite them not really doing the thing the way that God would have them do, God still uses it. Nothing goes to waste with the Lord. He uses everything. He uses every bit of it. But so often in Genesis, it's so encouraging when you read Genesis. The patriarchs got mad problems, right? It gives us hope. When we look at this story and this specific family and the rivalries that happened here, let's purpose to learn from their flaws. See, We see this discontentment with Rachel and Leah. We see the continued deception of Laban and Jacob. And we can look at that and say, "Eh, God blessed them anyways. So shall I sin so that grace shall abound? Certainly not, Paul says. We look at these examples and God gives us these examples in Scripture, not always to show us what to do, but to show us what not to do. And the problem here is discontentment and again, deception. And it takes a long time for specifically Jacob, but all of them to learn their lessons. But God took that time with them to teach them lessons, to teach us a lesson. It's okay to have family rivalries as long as you keep it Christian. Okay, so let's learn from them. Let's be people, let's be a family that does things that are going to honor God, that we would be content with him, that we wouldn't try to manipulate people and our circumstances to get what we want, but we would trust the Lord that he's going to have favor on us and we don't have to try to make things happen for ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, We thank you for your word, God. We thank you for um, this text. And again, Lord, it's so so encouraging to to read uh, these stories uh, about these real people, God, that you had favor on, 
uh, despite them messing up and not always doing the things that you uh, would desire for them to do, God. But I pray that we would learn from their flaws, that we would learn from their failures, and that we would uh, pursue lives that bring you honor and glory, that we would find our contentment in you and you alone. We wouldn't always be looking to other people and wanting what they have, that we would be satisfied with what we have in you. Your grace is sufficient, God. So help us not just understand that, but live that. In your name, amen.